Then he has to be sentenced to prison, which I think in any of those three cases is likely. Then, though, if he wins the election, forget it. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. We've got a great episode today. One issue I've always had with cable news is that it can be tricky, whether on the right or the left, to find analysts and commentators that give it to you straight. Very often I find that political analysis is filtered through a partisan lens, and it's often pretty hard to spot because so many of these analysts are experts in their field and they know way more about these issues than I do. That's why it's always exciting to talk to Ellie Honig, who is CNN's senior legal analyst and very much not one of those commentators. Not only is he a brilliant legal mind and an author, a really impressive career, he's also one of the straightest shooters when it comes to breaking down news the intersection of law and politics. I'd say he's right up there in that regard with Dan Abrams, ABC News' chief legal analyst and boss of Ada McLaughlin. Uh, Ellie has been ubiquitous on CNN, breaking down the series of indictments of former President Donald Trump that we've had in the last few months. He managed to sneak out of Hudson Yards for an interview here at Mediate HQ to break down the latest indictment and the rest of Trump's legal peril. Ellie, thanks so much for coming on the interview. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. That was a very nice intro. That was, I'm glad that's on tape. Jake he Tapper doesn't do that for you? <laughs> he <laughs> tends to give me quicker introductions than that. Sure, cable news. Um, but thank you. I, I, I actually do put a lot of value in that. I do think, I mean, I, someone told me early on, yeah. uh, who I respect in this industry, it just, you have to call it straight. Like you're just, you're not going to last. You're not going to have credibility. And it doesn't work if you have to give fudged or hedged takes. So um, it's worked for me from day one, and, and I do appreciate it. Now, as you know, if you call it straight, you're going to tick off a lot of people a yeah. lot of times. And I've done segments there where both sides have been like, I didn't like this. I didn't like right. that. So I guess that's an indicator that you're on. You know, it's like, it's true. I have this problem so much on cable news, and I'm not going to name any names so as not to get you in any trouble or me in any trouble or anything like that. But, you know, no matter what network it is, there's people that come on, and I'm just like, no matter what the issue is, they're going to toe the line. And that's just not what you want from legal. Well, well, a peripheral benefit of calling it straight, in yeah. addition to being honest, <laughs> is it's better TV. Exactly. Right? Like if you right. see a, a face pop up and you go, I know where this is headed. Mm. That's not that interesting. Not that interesting at all. Right. But, but I think if you, if you see me and I think a lot of my colleagues at CNN, you go, oh, oh I want to hear. Because if this person says this is a big deal or this is not a big deal. I know it's not because they're pulling for a side. I know it's because right. that's what they really believe based on their expertise. Readers at Mediate are always saying this, like they want to know when something happens, whether or not it's serious, whether or not it's worth taking seriously. Yeah. Anyway, we have the fourth indictment of Donald Trump. Is that what we're on now? I saw somebody nitpicking that it's I, technically okay. the fifth. Can I address that? Yeah, I would like that to. That is a ridiculous okay. take. No prosecutor, defense lawyer, <laughs> judge would ever consider a superseding indictment an additional, an additional indictment. indictment. It replaces, I mean, technically maybe there's sort of exist in the time-space continuum at the same time. That is, I saw that and I was, I was actually going to text a friend of mine who, who, who tweeted that, like, come on, this is silly. But I was like, eh, I don't need to settle everyone's hash, but <laughs> no, no, reject that. That's a ridiculous All thing. right. You heard it here first. We are on the fourth indictment <laughs> yes. of President Donald Trump. The superseding indictment does not count. Can you break down, say, yes. what does it mean? So this is the state-level indictment brought by the Fulton County District Attorney, Bonnie Willis. Essentially, she's charging Donald Trump and 18 others, by the way, let's not forget, with trying to steal the 2020 election results in Georgia. And by the way, one of the wild things about this indictment is, imagine if you can go back in time a year, two years, or even before Donald Trump, and you said, we're going to have an indictment of 18 people. It's going to be the former White House Chief of Staff, 
his top lawyer, a bunch of former federal prosecutors. You go, that's the biggest indictment ever. Now, add on top of that, the former president, but Mark Meadows, Rudy, Sidney Powell, Jeffrey Clark. Um, this is a very big swing by Fonnie Willis. I mean, one thing that prosecutors always have to do is you take this mass of evidence and how am I going to craft this down into an understandable, digestible case? And you make decisions all the time. This person's close to the line. This person may have committed some conduct, but it's fairly minor. And it's, it's not an easy call and there's no necessarily right or wrong as to who you charge. But here, it seems clear to me, Fonnie Willis has said, we're charging everyone with everything. And that has its benefits. It makes the indictment more imposing um, and in some respects more impressive, but there may also come a time when she regrets it, when you have to, act. look, she wrote the check, now she's got to cash it. Right. And um, trying 19 defendants at once, as she said she's going to do, is not going to happen for various practical and constitutional reasons. And, you know, like, an indictment is the easy part. I once, I once went to, uh, went out for celebratory drinks with an FBI agent and my fellow prosecutor when I was here with, with the Southern District of New York, and an older AUSA, who's now a federal judge, walked in and said, oh, what, what do you guys, what happened? What's the occasion? We said, oh, we just indicted a big case. And he gave us a look and he goes, we don't have beers here after indictments. We have beers after convictions. <laughs> so um, I, I will sort of echo that sentiment yep. here. So you've got 19 defendants. Yeah. It's like this huge RICO case. We learned today that uh, Fonnie Willis is going to try and start the trial in March of 2024. Yeah. Right in the dead heat of the 2024 election campaign. Uh, does that strike you as realistic at all? Do you no, think gonna, no, we're not. No gonna... chance. No chance. Here's why. <laughs> like, and also, how long is this process going to well, take? Th this is part of the problem. Bonnie Willis's office is working on another RICO trial right now with certainly less well-known people than Donald Trump. Right. Would be everybody. Yeah. Um, and fewer defendants. I think it's 13 defendants. They are seven months in, and they are still picking a jury. Okay. This is madness. Yeah. Um, federal jury selections much quicker, but I was federal and state. She is seven months into jury selection. They haven't even given opening statements. So let's do the math on this. What if the judge says, yes, okay, you'll be trying 19 defendants together starting in March. They'll still be picking a jury when the election happens. And putting aside the fact that we already have the Manhattan hush money case right. scheduled for the end of March and the Mar-a-Lago federal case scheduled for the beginning of May. This is, I, I think people need to understand, you cannot just schedule trial on top of trial on top of trial. You cannot do them. Well, this one will end at the end of March. Let's start the next one, April 3rd. Particularly, I imagine, for a president who has a secret service and all these questions about executive yeah. privilege. And well, stuff. there are practical concerns, but right. there's also constitutional concerns. Okay. I mean, Donald Trump has a right to prepare for each of these trials. Right. And each of them does require its own preparation. And I, I do sort of wish and urge that people would Keep that in mind. Like, he is a criminal defendant. His liberty is at stake. He does get the right to prepare a defense. That is part of the Constitution. And in some quarters, there's such a, a rush to get him tried and convicted and sentenced. Like, people are abandoning what they know to be their proper principle. I mean, I see former prosecutors saying things that they never would have tolerated in a case against an ordinary defendant. Right. You would never say to an ordinary fraud defendant, you have to go to trial in four months. I mean, that's, I, I know there's a public interest here, a broader public interest, but I would point the finger, by the way, back at DOJ and Fonnie Willis. They took they their took time. Two, two they years. took two yeah, and yeah. a half plus years to indict these cases. I, I think, think it's difficult for them, them to say, just as even a practical political atmospheric matter, to say, yes, we took two and a half years and everyone's, oh, they're crossing the T's. That, that's a long time to be crossing your T's. But 
We took two and a half years, and all four of these indictments happened to land in the middle of 2023 after Donald Trump had announced his candidacy, after Donald Trump was way ahead of the Republican field, and after Donald Trump was running essentially neck and neck with Joe Biden. I'm not saying there's bad faith. I'm not saying they did this on purpose. I don't buy into that conspiracy right. theory. I think they did it because of inertia, because Merrick Garland had no appetite for this. I can't explain why Fonnie Willis took so long, but let's even assume the best of faith by all of them. They're the ones who've created this traffic jam. They're the ones who've created this time crunch. Um, and, and I do think it's difficult for them to say, yeah, we took all this time, but you have to be ready for trial. You're the one defendant with the constitutional right. You're the one who's going to jail if you lose this, not us. Right. You have to be ready in four months. And by the way, here's multiple millions of documents in discovery, and you have all these complicated motions. But, but you know, too bad. Right. It, too bad. I hear so many people saying too bad. That's his fault. Maybe it's his fault. He's, he's at the defense table. Process out of the window. Right. I mean, when would you say this? When would you say this right. for an ordinary criminal defense? And you hear liberals saying it. People yeah. who ordinarily are the protectors of civil liberties right. are, are very quick to sometimes say, too bad, his fault. He's got a deal. Yeah. What, in your view, is the most serious charge? In the Georgia case. In the Georgia case. Well, the, the racketeering charge is count mm -hmm. one, and all of them are charged in it. Right. This is... This is a very broad statute. It's actually broader in Georgia than the federal law I used it's to It's like use. a serious crime in Georgia, right? Yeah. From I mean, there is a five-year mandatory minimum. Now, it right. seems a judge can go below that, which makes it neither a mandatory nor a minimum. So Georgia <laughs> may need to think about the way they describe this in their laws. But the, the beauty of racketeering from a prosecutor's point of view, and I used to charge it all. I, I used to teach, literally teach the class on it at, at SDNY after I char charged and tried it a bunch of times is, it allows you to show the jury this was an organized enterprise. This was a group. I used to charge the Gambino and Genovese family. That was actually easy because they had right. official ranks and initiation procedure. You know, that, that's easier. But they don't have to have that. Right. And this is charged as essentially, it's not called this in the indictment, but it's the Trump enterprise. Mm -hmm. And I think they do make a compelling showing in the indictment that this was a group of people at least loosely affiliated. They weren't necessarily all gathering in a smoke room, but working more or less together and in a coordinated way to try to steal this election by lying to the Georgia legislature, by lying to courts, by pressuring officials. So I do think they paint a compelling picture in both this case and Jack Smith's case in different ways of a coordinated effort to steal this election. Right. One thing that I'm really fascinated by, one of the co-defendants is Jenna Ellis, yeah. Trump lawyer. And I don't know if you saw this, but like, the, the Trump boosters and the Trump campaign people have turned on Jenna Ellis. Oh, because, big time, yeah. Because she's uh, supportive of, of DeSantis now. And I'm looking at all of this and I'm thinking, if the, the goal of these big, scary indictments of some of these defendants is to get one of them or multiple of them to cooperate, how likely is it, do you think, that we see someone like Jenna Ellis cooperating with the investigation and maybe testifying against Trump, or is that just not something that you foresee happening in a case like this? I don't see her doing that in particular. Okay. Um, look, all these lawyers are going to argue that you can't criminalize lawyering. lawyering. And here's the thing. As a lawyer, you're allowed to make bad arguments. You're right. allowed to make losing arguments. Guess what? Every lawyer has lost an argument. How about you? Never lost anything. <laughs> I lost plenty. Um, but heaven help us if uh -huh. making a ridiculous argument right. becomes a crime. Now, the prosecutor's argument here is a little different. It's that they knowingly made bad faith arguments, not just sort of in an excess of lawyering, but because they were in on the plan to steal this election. But Jenna Ellis is a great example. And I should say, this is, you'll, you'll get this. I'm, I'm no fan of, or admirer of hers whatsoever. I'll tell you a funny, quick media yeah. story. Uh, back when Chris Cuomo was with us at CNN, he would do this segment called like Cuomo's Court or something. And, right. he, and they would be like, 
you know, mock trial arguments and it'd be right, you right. versus so-and-so. And towards the end of his time there, he started having me on those segments and he had me on it once. And they, they the, the team says, you're going to be debating Jenna Ellis. And I'm like, was this after 2020? This, well, hold on. Like, I'll give you, the, I'll give you the story. And I'm like, I don't know who this is. Okay. I Google her and I'm like, she's a lawyer in like Colorado, I guess. But I was like, I don't see any definable resume items. Like she, I was like, is she at a firm? Is she, she's not a prosecutor. She sort of did like municipal driving tickets or something. And I was like, who the hell is this person? And so I go on to do the debate and I'm ready with my substantive points. And I do the opening bit. And then Chris goes, okay, Jenna Ellis. And she just starts going MAGA, make America great. F you. I mean, she didn't say F you, but that was basically That's no substance. Yeah. And Chris was like, what is going on here? He cut her off. We kept, and then he would go, okay, Ellie, back to the substance. What do you want to say? And I, you know, you can find this clip somewhere. And then she just goes right back to, you know, the Democrats are, I don't care, Democrat, Republican. Yeah. And, and it was a complete train wreck of a segment. And then like the next day she was announced as, you know, mega lawyer to the Trump right. campaign or something. Yeah. So I don't know if he saw that segment. She was sort of doing the rounds, but I, I think it's part of the story that he, she caught his eye from doing TV. That's, that's the way it always goes with Trump. Yeah. And also like, I imagine at that point he had gotten to the real end of the line on lawyers that he could hire. Right. I, fired all the I the don't know. I, I don't know. But, but let me say this though. And, and actually there's a perp, a larger purpose. This. So obviously I'm not an admirer of right. Jenna Ellis. That said, what exactly did Jenna Ellis do? That's criminal. And and I think that's a fair question here about the breadth of this indictment. Right. I mean, you look at this case, did Jenna Ellis engage in horrible, ridiculous lawyering? Yes. But is there proof that she was part of a criminal conspiracy that merits her being locked up? I'm not super convinced of that when I read this indictment. I, I think she was ridiculous, obnoxious, abused her power as, as a lawyer, but they're going to have to prove more than that in order right. to convict her. Now, but when you look at the case as a whole, and I get that it's so broad yeah. and there's so many defendants and there's so many crimes being charged, uh, do you see individual crimes in there or alleged crimes as being criminal? Sure. I mean, I, I think they make a compelling case as to the overall scheme, as to the right. main players, as to Trump, as to Rudy Giuliani, right? Rudy went way beyond. This is sort of a good comparison with Jen Ellis. I mean, Rudy did all the horrible lawyering stuff and way more. Right. He went in front of the Georgia legislature and lied his ass off. He harassed. Yeah, he, or, well, or, I was going to say harassment of if you want the most concrete, I think, relatable example of criminal conduct is what they did to to Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman, yes. the two election workers. Also the most nauseating. Oh, 100%. Like, I mean, they harassed, intimidated, threatened, tampered with them. They the, the craziest part is they tried to get those women to come forward and say, yeah, there really was election fraud. I mean, God bless Ms. Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss. I mean, we saw them testify in front of the January 6th committee. They're so honest. They're, they're public servants. They're heroic in their humble way. They wouldn't claim to be heroes, but I'll call them that. Exactly. And they had their lives destroyed by these folks, by vicious, intentional lies. And so to me, thinking about this prosecutorially, they're my best witnesses yeah. in this whole damn case. Um, and I think that is one of the more concrete examples of instantly understandable and relatable criminality. Now, unlike the cases that we're looking at, the other indictments, this one seems to be, and I, I don't know whether this has to do with Fonnie Willis or just the, the yeah. nature of it being state charges, but it seems it's like, like we, we might get a mugshot, cameras during the arraignment, cameras yeah. in the courtroom when this goes to trial. What access do you think we're going to get? And, and also like, 
Do you think that that's going to have any effect on just the politics of this? The fact that we're going to be seeing a number of Georgia Republican Georgia elections officials testifying that what was done was egregious. Yeah. So let me take that in a, in a couple parts. The level of access that we as the media and the public are going to have to all four of these trials is probably going to vary wildly. The two federal cases, the two Jack Smith cases, the federal courts are so stodgy. They're so self-righteous. They have a rule. They go, oh, we have, but we have a rule that says no cameras in the courtroom. <laughs> Who makes that rule? They do. <laughs> right? It's like there's not some Martian overlords coming down imposing this rule yeah. on them. Um, and it's interesting to see a little bit of a maybe a public consensus coming together. I mean, I don't do the soapbox uh, for my personal causes, but I have done this on air at CNN yeah. and I'll do it again here, which is the federal courts have to get over themselves. And if you ask, what's oh, so, the, so, yeah. sorry, just interrupt. Yeah. you're of the opinion that it is, because I, I think there's probably two different uh, opinions on this, that, that putting cameras in courtrooms is a good thing. Absolutely. Not like that it makes it a sort of- Well, spectacle. that's that's exactly what I was going to say. The counter argument that right. you would hear from judges is, well, it undermines decorum and it encourages lawyers to grandstand and all that. So first of all, like little insider tip, they grandstand anyway. <laughs> I mean, there were lawyers we used to know like, oh, this guy cries every jury. Address. Like, you know, he forces the tears, let's send my client home. That's nothing new. Um, look, at, look at examples though, recently. We saw the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer who convicted of murder of George Floyd. We saw the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. We saw the trial of the people who murdered Ahmaud Arbery. All of those were state cases. We had TV cameras in there, the Murdoch trial recently. All of them, I think, were conducted reasonably and fairly and with dignity. They didn't become crazy circuses. So those are some good examples. It's really on a judge to control the courtroom. Um, so I don't buy that rationale. And by the way, I've said this on air a couple of times, and then uh, I won't say who, but a very well-connected other contributor said, oh, there's a couple federal judges who are texting me that they don't agree with you. I was like, good, let me debate them. Bring them on. Let them, let them stand. Bring them on TV. Yeah, exactly. I'll go to Cuomo's <laughs> court and debate them or whatever. Um, but I, what you're seeing, there was a letter sent in by a bunch of elected Democrats in Congress. And interestingly, Trump's lawyers said, John Loro said, I want this televised. Now, I wonder if that's a little bit of a bluff by him because he knows right. it's very unlikely. But look, maybe, maybe the federal courts will meet us halfway uh -huh. and say you can have a live audio feed. The Supreme Court did this. The Supreme Court didn't have any feed until COVID. And they said, fine, we'll do an audio feed. And you know what? They still do it now. And it's a good thing. Right. It allows us to listen. It allows access. Nobody's acting out in the Supreme Court. So I think that I'm hoping that this becomes a moment to force that change on the federal courts. I'm not optimistic because I understand the mindset there. Right. If that's in, indeed the case and we don't have cameras or a live audio feed, think of how we're going to have to cover this in the media. We're going to have to have people in the courtroom, but you can't come out and do a live hit while the court proceeds. So they're going to have to run out at the five-minute bathroom break and say, here's what just happened. And people are going to be watching all day. Right. Because, and, and, but they're going to have to wait for breaks. And then it's, it's crazy. And then at the end of the day, two or three hours after the day, you get your written transcript, 300 pages. Mm -hmm. Good luck. I mean, combing through that at nine <laughs> at night. And then you're going to get your courtroom sketches. I mean, literally, this will be like it's 1858. Like, you're going to have courtroom sketch artists giving us the only visuals we have. That's how ridiculous this is. Now, the states are a different matter. Georgia seems clear they are going to allow cameras, full cameras in the courtroom. I think that's going to make, obviously, a huge difference to public access, to the way we cover this. Is it going to make a difference in what people think? I don't know, because we all saw the January 6th committee. That was pretty visceral. Yeah. Cassidy Hutchinson and Ms. Moss and right. Ms. Freeman. And I don't know how many. I think it changed some minds, but, but not, not in was, a wholesale way. It was really compelling. Well, one thing I think the January 6th but. committee, look, they did a remarkable job. I think they absolutely 
changed the entire political discourse and public pressure to the point where Merrick Garland was forced out of his stupor. Right. And shortly thereafter, you started seeing DOJ start to subpoena some of these folks. And then Jack Smith came on board and he got the job done, by the way, in eight months. Right. So with all these people that say Fonnie Willis needed two and a half years, why did Jack Smith need eight months? Yeah. Um, as for the New York hush money case, there's a little more discretion in the New York courts. They typically do not allow cameras in, but it's not quite as ironclad as in the federal courts. That one, I'm actually skeptical either of the state cases will happen before the election. I think Fonnie Willis is not going to get hers. Uh, Ty Cobb, the lawyer who used to represent Donald Trump, who's on our air quite a bit, and usually his takes are very anti-Trump, right. said the other night, uh, he said, oh, no, he said, it's going to take two years before Fonnie Willis's case even gets to trial. Really? And I, 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 you know, that means something to me because 90% of his answers are whatever's worse for Trump. Right. Yeah. So when he actually occasionally says something that's, right. that's not terrible for Trump, I go, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. You have been critical of Fonnie Willis. Yeah. I'm curious if you could lay out that argument for us. Yeah. And then also, does that give you concern about the way that this case is going? Yeah, you know, people tend to gravitate towards these just good or bad narratives. Is she good or bad? Right. And it's, of course, more complicated than that. She is a very accomplished and impressive prosecutor. I see her work. I see her public statements. And I think, wow, she's the real deal. She knows what she's doing. She's highly competent. And I don't think that of all these prosecutors. Right. You know, critical of Bill Barr, critical of Merrick Garland, uh, critical of Alvin Bragg, who's a friend of mine. Um, but... The fact, this is not an opinion, the fact is she has mixed politics into this case in a way that's potentially problematic. If It's not probably not going to rise to the level where it's going to cause a dismissal of her case. You can bet it's going to give Trump ammo to make a motion. But even in just the public legitimacy and acceptance of this, I'll give you some specific examples. She's already been kicked off a piece of this case because she subpoenaed a Republican who was running for office and she then uh, hosted a fundraiser for a Democratic opponent. Well, that's exactly what the judge said. The judge here who has basically been giving her everything she wants and, right. and fawning over her said, and I quote, what were you thinking? <laughs> and by the way, there's an interesting argument here that if you have a conflict of interest as a prosecutor, you can't just remove the person as to that narrow slice of the case. They have to be right. gone from the whole case. It's like if you take a sip of a jug of milk and it's bad, you don't go, well, that sip was bad, right, but right. the rest of it's fine. Contaminated. It's contaminated. I'll leave that argument to Trump and his team. Um, the other thing that she did was she subpoenaed Lindsey Graham, Republican senator, and then a political cartoon appeared making fun of Lindsey Graham. It, it shows Fonnie Willis sitting in a boat looking sort of heroic with a fishing pole and a big fat fish entitled Lindsey Graham on the end of the hook. And it says something like, hey, Lindsey, how do you feel about the swamp now? Or So I'm paraphrasing what it is. Um, and she then somebody tweeted out and she then retweeted or responded. She amplified it and basically said, oh, thank you so much. And was the guy who tweeted out was saying everyone needs to donate to Fonnie Willis and everyone needs to follow Fonnie Willis. He was a Democratic Party operative. And to me, I mean, nobody, nobody would accept that. Anyone out there who's been an AG or a U.S. attorney would say if one of your people did that, if one of your people started running for office and did that, you'd fire them. Really? Of course. That, that's outrageous. Um, I, look, I get that elected officials have to raise funds, but raise you don't funds. do it based on I just subpoenaed someone in an right. ongoing investigation from the other political party. She's also made many public comments outside the courtroom. Most of the time, she's done a good job of, of not crossing the line. She, I can see the, the wheels turning in her head in a way that I think is, is admirable. I don't want to cross the line. But she has, maybe inadvertently, but she has a couple of times. She went on MSNBC at one point, uh, maybe a year ago, and basically said that 
this does look to her like a criminal matter, not a civil matter. And she also talked about her opinion that Donald Trump had criminal state of mind. That's for the grand jury. Of course, the grand jury is going to give you what right. you want as a prosecutor, but you can't be saying that as your matter of opinion in public, separate from the courtroom beforehand. Also, shouldn't be tweeting, appearing on cable news. Like it's advisable not to. Like, why? Yeah, no, there's like, no upside right. in it, right? There's nothing. Except promoting yourself. Right, and... exactly. I mean, she, she's she been on, uh, she's done over 40 media interviews during the course of this investigation um, on, I, th I think, over a dozen different networks. And I do like and encourage transparency, but you also have to really respect that line. And she did a lot of wink, wink, nod, nod. You know, a lot of, well, we're going to, you know, we're not afraid of anybody. We're going to do what we have to do. You, you, it's been 100% obvious she's going to, look, my book, I finished writing my book a year ago. And in it, I wrote, by the time you're holding this book, Donald Trump will probably be indicted maybe more than once, most likely by the Fulton County DA. So, um, you know, you don't get everything right, but that was obvious. Your book. Yes. It's a great book. Thank you. I urge everyone listening to go and read it. It's called Untouchable. Yes. It's nice and concise, which <laughs> I like. It's not a huge tome. And it's about how powerful people get away with things. Yes. And bringing this to these indictments that we have against mm -hmm. Trump. Trump is a, is a focus of the book. And can you foresee in any of these cases, Trump being convicted right. of any crimes? So the conundrum here is to me, the strongest, most straightforward facts that clearly match up with the law in a neat and comprehensible way is the Mar-a-Lago case. Mm. I mean, he, he had sensitive documents. He refused to give them back. He obstructed justice. There's nothing novel really, aside from the fact that he's a former president. The problem is that jury pool is going to be good for Donald Trump. Right. They're in Florida, Southern District of Florida. And Donald Trump won Florida in 2020. Even in the Southern counties, he didn't quite get as much. But 40%, you're, you're going to have three, four, five, six, seven Trump voters on that jury. And yes, jurors are told you're to filter out all your personal opinions, but they're humans. I've been in front of many juries. Like, you know, if you have five Trump voters on that jury. You think in a certain framework. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. The... I think the two January 6th cases, Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith, make out a very compelling case that th this was all Donald Trump's doing. He was behind it. Um, the facts of those cases are not really contested, what he did and what he said. Right, because he did so much of this stuff just- Yeah, <laughs> in public or it's on audio tape or it's in, yeah. a, it's in a text. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a, it takes a little bit of creativity to apply the laws to this conduct. I think both prosecutors have actually done a good job of that. But I can see a juror going, mm, it did this cross the line from political activity or First Amendment protected speech into criminality. I think it does. Right. But I can see a jury struggling with that. On the other hand, your D.C. jury pool is going to be horrible for Trump. He got 5% of the vote in 2020. No wonder he's, he's not going to succeed in getting it moved out of there. Right. And uh, your jury pool will be good for the D.A. in Georgia. He got in Fulton County. Trump got, I think, 26% of the vote. But even still, mathematically, he's likely to have a, a juror or two. Um, the Manhattan case, I'm putting aside, because even if he gets convicted, he's not going to jail off of that. It's, it's, it almost looks <laughs> more ridiculous now. No, the funny thing is it hit first, and it felt like a huge deal. Yeah. And now three indictments later, it's like, uh -huh. why, did, why did Bragg even bring this? Let's just skip that trial. I was saying it honestly. at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is he going to actually go to prison is a lot of people's question. Let, let me just lay out the steps. A, he has to be convicted, right. which could well happen. I actually yeah. think it's quite possible. Then he has to be sentenced to prison, which I think in any of those three cases is likely. Okay. 
Then, though, if he wins the election, forget it. If right. he wins the election, he'll throw out the DOJ cases. He'll pardon himself. And the Georgia case? The, the problem with the Georgia case is they're not going to be able to try him while he's sitting president. I mean, oh wow! constitutionally, given the federal supremacy right. doctrine, there's no way the federal courts will allow a count. She's a county level prosecutor. I mean, that would be the same thing as if the Sussex County, New Jersey, I don't live in Sussex County, but like the Sussex County, New Jersey prosecutor tried to put Joe Biden on trial right now. Right. It would never happen. So I've heard people say, well, constitutionally, we don't know. I'm sorry. The, my legal analysis on this one boils down to it. That ain't happening. So if Trump wins 2024, right. all of these indictments washed away. Well, the DOJ indictments get dismissed, dismissed. Or, and or he'll try to pardon himself. We don't know if that's right. legal or not. But the problem is the only way to challenge a self-pardon is DOJ has to indict him and then litigate. It. It's going to be his DOJ. I guess theoretically he could be charged. He could have, be tried in New York and Georgia in 2029. Right. But I mean, if, if that's what we're waiting for, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to hold my breath on that. He's an old man. He'll be 80, yeah. whatever, two, <laughs> and it'll be the, the conduct will be a decade old. I mean, I, I don't know how that, how that's going to actually play out. Right. And let me ask that. Let me add this. Yeah. If he loses, yes, he yeah. gets he yeah. gets sentenced to prison. Mm -hmm. Um. Then there's still the possibility, people get so mad when I say this, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there's, there's a possibility that he gets commutation um, from the federal cases. There's a possibility that a second term, 84, 85 year old Joe Biden says, not pardoning him, conviction stands for history, but I don't think we need him to go to prison. I beat him twice in an election. Let's move on. It's possible. Uh, the Georgia case is more complicated because there's no presidential pardon for that. And there's not even a governor pardon for that. It's this board of pardons. So Georgia in that respect is, is I think very problematic for him. But okay. the, my point is with all these cases, there's four, three, four, five substantial hurdles that need to be overcome. And by the way, he is not going to get locked up before the election, no matter what, no matter what, because even if he gets convicted and then sentenced to prison all before the election, he will almost certainly get what we call bail pending appeal. Meaning the judge will say, you don't have to start serving your time until you've exhausted and lost all your appeals. And that means the Intermediate Court of Appeals, whether the Federal Circuit Court and then US, maybe U.S. Supreme Court, or the same thing at the state level. That's going to take, I mean, even if they super expedited a year, 18 months to get through all of his appeals. Of course, there's all sorts of logistical issues. And by the way, I think that's an important point. Even if he gets convicted, people who want to still stand by Donald Trump are going to go, we think that trial was bogus. He's got an appeal. He, right. We think he's going to win on appeal. I mean, who knows? But like, it's not, I mean, I do wonder, this is more for the political folks, like is, would a conviction actually change minds? Um, I actually heard one of my colleagues, I think it was Scott Jennings today, said he thinks it will. I don't know. You know I don't know. After January 6th happened, yeah. and I watched, I was watching Fox News that night and the day after and saw everyone from Republican officials to Fox News hosts come on the air and say, this is a horrible day. For America, this is right. terrible. This is all Donald Trump's fault. Within a week, that had washed away. Yeah. It, it's he very quickly solidified. It's incredible how quickly. I mean, do you yeah, remember? January 6th doesn't do that. I don't know that anything does. Exactly. I mean, do you remember how quickly Kevin McCarthy turned around? McCarthy right. said he bears responsibility. Yeah. And then he goes down. To, I wrote about this in my book. Then he goes down to Mar-a-Lago, kisses the ring, has these ridiculous pictures where he's side by side, and he, and he comes out a new man. Right. And it's part of the power that, that Trump has. So- I'll leave the political forecasting to the political folks. But listen, I said the other day on air that I was on a panel with Van Jones, who's a you know brilliant political mind. And I said, 
this, these Trump trials are to me the dominant, I think are going to be the dominant issue of the 2024 campaign. I don't know if that's a good thing for our democracy, but that's the reality. And Van said, no, they're the only issue. Yeah. I mean, look at the coverage. What policy issue has gotten one, one thousandth the attention of the Trump trials? Does, is anyone talking about what the various candidates' positions are on the environment, yeah. on the economy, on, on national defense? Is, is he going to be able to campaign all these trials? That's a great question. I mean, no. no. Not while, when you are, when, when he had his E. Jean Carroll trial right. a few months ago, he skipped it because it's a civil case you're yeah. allowed. Not a great idea. He lost. <laughs> I mean, I don't recommend that, but criminal trial, you have to be there. And that's actually another factor that imagine if he has two or three trials back to back that go for six months. He, he can't do any of the campaigning stuff. Now he's may well get a bigger bang for the buck from having daily outside the courthouse pressers. I don't know. I, I, I don't understand the, the minds of the voters that deeply, but right. yeah, this will take him off the trail. Trump and his allies and, uh, and many in conservative media have called this a two-tiered justice system whereby Trump is being persecuted and Democrats are getting off scot-free. What do you make of that argument? Trump deserves to be indicted. Let's start with that. I mean, that's a central theme of my book. But I do wish it had been done a different way. I do, I do think ideally it should have been left to DOJ. I don't think either of the state charges add any substantive value. And I think they do contribute to that narrative that this is a pile on. I think if I was in charge of all prosecutors, state and federal, which there is no such job, I would have said this is a job for DOJ. I argue this in the book right. as well. I say there are certain jobs that just as a practical and political matter can only be handled by DOJ. And I think. DOJ it took them forever, but they've, they've charged these cases smartly and I think appropriately. Alvin Bragg's case is ridiculous um, and, and deals with age-old conduct and in, is just for all, you know, could be even a misdemeanor, which is just preposterous. Right. And DA Willis, again, I, I, I respect her in, in a lot of areas and the way she handles her office and in her experience, but I just don't know that this case adds anything to the welfare of all of us. And the response I get a lot of times is, oh, but it's a, it's a, it's a threatening indictment. It's going to take Trump down. It's, it's pardon proof. But I go, yeah, if your bottom line is just nail Trump, right. then it is a good thing. But if you're, if you're, but I would also know, yeah. you, you said, you know, I've heard the pardon proof argument a lot. Yeah. This is a state case that he can't pardon himself. From. Yeah. But as you're pointing out, if he gets elected again, they're not going to be able to try this case. Not anyway. until 2029. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's like, what are we really what buying we here? Right. Yeah. But I mean, so if, if, you're, if your bottom line is just nail Trump however possible, then you should love this. And you should want Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin to pile on there. Theoretically, right. if, if that's your principle, then let's, he should be indicted 10 times. Obviously, I reject that. Accountability is so important. He had to be indicted for the purpose of accountability. But to me, there's also an important value of respecting a person's constitutional rights and just not engaging in prosecutorial overkill. That is something the prosecutors wrestle with all day long. And conscientious prosecutors will tell you that you don't automatically just say, was there a crime? Hence, I charge it. I'm not saying he deserves a pass, but I'm saying that these extraneous indictments ultimately, I don't think, do us collectively any good. Right. And um, one other argument that you've heard from conservatives is that this is now these sort of there's going to be retaliatory prosecutions that right. now you know, next time a, a Democrat does something wrong that all these Republican 
DAs are going to turn around and prosecute them on trumped up charges. What, what do you mean? Yeah, gosh, I, I hope not. Um, I mean, you do have to have some basis of That's criminality. Right. Yeah, there's got to be, you have to yeah. just prosecute for no reason. Right. Uh, you're you're going to get wiped out in court if you do that. Right. I do halfway wonder, though, if some, and listen, there's 2,000 elected DAs across this country. Got to be some crackpots somewhere. Right. Like someone who's in a 92% red district right. maybe says, well, I'm going to make a point here. I'm going to become a hero. And I'm going to indict Joe Biden for influence peddling. Even though there's no, no crime in particular right. called influence peddling, but official misconduct. In New Jersey, we have a very broad law called official misconduct. I mean, the example I give in the book is I think it's a problematic precedent in general for, for I don't think it necessarily is barred, but I think it leads to problems if you have local elected county level prosecutors indicting former presidents. Because the example I give in the book is what if Joe Arpaio, you remember Joe Arpaio? He was a sheriff. He wasn't a Arizona. DA, but right. But a guy like that could easily run for Lunatic. DA. Yes, lunatic, pardoned by Trump, by the way. Yeah. Um, but absolutely maniac, ignored court orders, racially profiled people, everything horrible. Imagine the next Joe Arpaio, or Joe Arpaio, Arpaio himself becomes the DA of, I don't know the name of the county in, in Arizona, whatever county he was in, and says, I want to make a I want to make a name for myself, and I'm going to indict Barack Obama over the Fast and Furious. Remember the Fast and Furious scandal where they, they let guns walk, and they yep. came back, and one was used in a murder of a border agent? What's to stop that? What's to stop that? And, and so, you know, I'm actually really interested to see, will some Republican elected prosecutor try this? Again, though, you do have to have some evidence. And I, you know, I've been vocal on air about Hunter Biden's misdeeds. I have no sympathy for the guy. And I have major questions about the way he's been investigated by DOJ. I think this is ballooning into a big problem for DOJ. But um, if you're going to, if you're going to date anyone, you do have to have some evidence. Right. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't require saying but it, yes you're on cnn this morning the early morning show right. and you're on like 80 different times throughout the day <laughs> and then you're on in prime time which is an astounding stretch yeah how do you do it what are your secrets uh a couple things we have nap rooms at cnn amazing although i, I will Can say I use them? are they open to the public uh i guess so um they're actually i should let me let me correct myself they're lactation rooms oh my and so there is a woman on on the floor i sit on who every day needs it at 1 30 oh, so you book them you don't go and there's, there's no, you don't want any overlap. yeah or i yield them um and so i stay clear of it but i will say there's an engineering flaw in that the nap rooms were put right next to the freight elevator oh my so you hear this mess <laughs> every 15 minutes uh there's a gym in our building which helps nice um I I am trying to withdraw from coffee. It's not going that well. I've heard once you do it. I succeeded at it for I a week. Over the hump. Oh, no, I succeeded at it for a week. I was like, this is great. It was great. And now I'm back to just like, you know what I do with coffee? Um, this is what the kids call microdosing. Oh, my God. With, right? Do you microdose coffee? Yes, I do. Like, you just like drink like a, like a, a half a cup like every four hours or something. Okay. And I don't, by the way, like I don't, this is more information you need, but like I barely drink alcohol at all. It's not like a. Right. Like principled stance. I just like, just I'm old. Much, right? Yeah. And so it's like, but I don't have addictions, but, but it's tough. This Coffee's one's a tough hard. one. But I mean, the thing is like to end on a corny note here, like I just love doing it. And yeah. it, as much as it can be stressful and tiring, it's so important and energizing for me that like, I never, ever feel like I'm lagging when I'm about to go on air. I always have an adrenaline burst. Right. Um, and it's so important and satisfying. And there's so many people watching, right? You, you can forget exactly. that. Exactly. Especially when you're in a flash and you're just staring into a camera. You're, you're like, in the fifth of the day. It's like. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the way someone put it to me was like, picture Yankee Stadium. Even in your least watched moments on TV, picture Yankee Stadium filled up 15, 15 times. times. Right. 
Um, so I love it. I, I think that comes through that I love doing this. I love explaining things to people. And so that really goes a very, very long way. So yeah, it, um, it's a lot, but, but it's also like, we're at a very important moment here in American history. And I don't think the interest in the legal system has ever been at this level before and the importance of what we're doing has never been at this level before. So if I can help a few people understand it, then, then it's all good. Ellie Honig. CNN's senior legal analyst. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Ellie Honig on Mediaite.com.